This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today is our second quarterly call with Jonathan Golub, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist at Credit Suisse. Today, we're going to cover a wide range of economic talking points, but we recently received the updated GDP numbers, which equated to a 32.9% decline in the second quarter of 2020. We've seen many states currently reopen since their last call, but spikes in the COVID has caused many to slow their rollouts or to start shutting down again. Uh, Jonathan, what do you think GDP is going to look like for the third quarter? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. And, and the first thing, and I know it sounds like a goofy way to start, is you have to look at how GDP is actually calculated. And so what they do, and, and you know, the guys in the government who build these numbers, is they look at the second quarter and they compare it not to a year ago, but compare it to the first quarter and then they, they multiply it by four. And so when you have an economy that went from beginning to shut down to entirely shut down, it, it was going to be an enormous fall. But what's even more of a big deal is if you take the actual decline from Q2 versus Q1 and then you multiply it by four, you get a really big number. So the economy did not fall by 33%. It really fell a quarter of that number from the second quarter to the first quarter, so less than 10%. Um, but it's, it's really simple. You took the economy, you turned the lights off, you told everybody to sit in their house, what do we expect is going to happen? And then you turn it back on and you're going to get a brilliant number in the second, I'm sorry, in the third and the fourth quarter, you're going to get, I don't know, a 15% or, you know, GDP number. But again, that number is going to exaggerate the reopening process and make it seem better than it actually is. Because what we do know is that the third and the fourth quarter are going to be a lot weaker than they were a year ago. And that's not the way the numbers are going to get reported. They're going to make it seem as if, look, the economy is growing the fastest it ever has. But if you really look at it, where it is compared to normal, we're still way, way off of normal. Yeah, I mean, I, we, I mean one thing we saw was that, you know, the employment population ratios, you know, dropped dramatically from January uh, to May, you know, going from 61.2% in January down to 52.8% in May. But, um, it seems like kind of the, uh, you know, the unemployment numbers, you know, dropped initially, but they've kind of been hovering around 11% now. Um, and I'd be curious, you know, how much of the unemployment is currently permanent or how much of it still, you know, people who are furloughed and, and still might get their jobs back? Yeah, the, 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 the numbers are really funky. And I think this is the case in general, like I said, with GDP a second ago, but the same thing with the employment numbers. First of all, the unemployment rate, the way that they determine it is they ask a whole bunch of people, hey, you're looking for a job. And if you say no, then you're fine. That means that you don't show up. So imagine that you may have lost your job, but you have a bunch of kids at home that you need to homeschool and you, you have no choice but to focus on that. And they say, well, you're looking for work. And you say, well, no, I have to take care of these kids. And they say, well, you don't count as if you're looking for a job. You're not unemployed. Well, of course they're unemployed. Um, mm -hmm. And then you also have a whole bunch of people um, who are working in small businesses that are getting paid a salary only because the government is making PPP loans or grants, whatever you want to call them, to their employer. 
And if that money from the government was cut off, or more, more, probably more accurately, if they simply said that we're going to pay you that wage, but we're going to put it as part of the unemployment benefit pool, then you'd have millions of more people who would be counted as unemployed, and yet there really would be no difference um, or, or, or and the like. So the, the numbers are funky. Here's the way I think that we should be looking at it. About 20 million people lost their jobs and are, are, are getting unemployment. Now the number is down a little bit, but that's where it was at the peak. And then we have maybe another 10 million people who are being kept in their jobs one way or another simply because the government is providing uh, assistance. And that's a number that's probably closer to 20% of the, of, the, of the labor pool that's been, let's call it, displaced. And that's going to take a really long time to get back to normal. The last, uh, in the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, about 7 million people or so lost their jobs, and it took four years before we regained those jobs, and this number is a much bigger number. So we're probably not looking until probably 2024, give or take a year or so, before all of the, these, these people have been displaced or back in um, the kind of jobs that they wish they had. Well, that's a seriously long time, 2024, especially because we saw such a rapid decline in, in unemployment. That said, we, we do see the pandemic unemployment benefits are set to expire on Friday. The $600 unemployment bonus has been getting a lot of pushback recently. Do you think we're going to get another stimulus from, from Washington, and how is that going to impact the, the unemployment numbers and the economy as a whole? Um. So let me actually, let me add, you know, because I think you touch upon something here. Let me first um, highlight just one more thing on, on the last question that you were asking, perhaps more important than the unemployment rate or non-farm payrolls. Um, every Thursday, the government uh, reports two things, how many new people file for unemployment claims. And that number has been hovering at about 1.4 million. So it's not really coming down um, in a meaningful way, but they also um, highlight what they call continuing claims. How many people were getting unemployment claims last month that are also getting unemployment claims? And, and the continuing claims have actually ticked up, that there are, um, that, 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 you know, the number of people who are kind of persistently unemployed here is not improving. So I think that those claims may be a better way to look at things rather than the survey saying, are you looking for work? But on this issue of the, un the $600 that people have been getting, it's a big fight between Democrats and Republicans, and it's unfortunate that this has become partisan, but I think the number is something like two-thirds of Americans are getting paid more in unemployment than they were making before, and this is a real problem for a recovery because people don't have an incentive to go back to work, and something... Um, Perhaps in the neighborhood of 70% replacement would be would probably be more uh, more appropriate. And what what it would do is say, listen, we don't want people losing their homes, we don't want people starving and things like that. But we want to make sure that people have a huge incentive that if their old boss says, hey, do you want to come back? Boy, you're going to run back to that job. And um, that's really the debate. Democrats want to maintain the full 600. Republicans are saying is, yeah, but if we do that. People aren't going to have the right incentives to go back and take a job. And in certain cases, the job that people are going to take, um, if they if they cut some of that $600 surcharge, 
uh, not surcharge, extra coming from the federal government, um, that you may have to take a job that you don't love, but you, you're going to be compelled to go back to work. And, and that's the debate. Ultimately, um, we're going to get a deal done. There's no question about that. The question is, how much will the government be adding to the state unemployment benefits? Is it a little bit more generous? Is it a little bit less generous? But we're going to get something. Um, and it's very important for the market um, because the market right now really is, is assuming this is going to get done. And if this were to expire at the end of August without a resolution, I, I think the market takes, uh, takes it on the chin. Yeah, it was one thing that was really interesting um, was, and this would happen last month, but, you know, the BLS was heavily criticized for some of their accounting errors. I, I guess, like, I'd like to just revisit that because I think a lot of people, you know, didn't know um, what the hell was going on and, and what the claims against them really were. So, I mean, how much of that criticism was warranted and and uh, what what was what was it really? Gosh, this, you know, I, I think that we're finding that, this is such an unusual time that what is a furloughed worker, um, what, you know, who's, who's counted in which um, pools and, and, and what definitions are applied. And then when you put, and when people um, are, are in, inappropriately categorized as unemployed, and then you adjust the numbers down or, or adjust numbers up, that it, it really creates a problem, which is why, um, I, I, the, the, the one thing that's important about the the monthly jobs report, which is which comes out um, usually on the first Friday of each month, and is based on the survey that I was saying before, and that's where you get the unemployment rate from. It's not an actual number of people who are um, unemployed. It's a survey. They're asking I don't know tens of thousands of people. You know, how do you consider yourself? Whereas the unemployment claims. That come out each Thursday. That's an actual number. You know, Dave, did you call in for your benefit this week and get a check <laughs> sent into your checking account? And if you didn't, you're, then then you are not a uh, you know. Then and and that is a real number. It's not a survey. And so that's my preferred methodology. Now those numbers, you know, somebody may you know some of those may be reversed or there may be some issues, but they're much cleaner. One of the other things that we're going to see, and, and my um, strategy team over at Credit Suisse, we, we, we talked about this this morning for, gosh, about, about 20 minutes, half an hour, is that we also, when we get quoted numbers, the unemployment rate or the number of jobs created, those are not the actual numbers, even from the surveys, they are seasonally adjusted. So, for example, if a teacher's not working over the summer and then she goes back in or he or she goes back into their job in September, we don't count that as an additional job because the numbers are massaged by saying, yes, we know that the number of teachers comes down in the summer. So we're going to kind of smooth that out. And so one of the things that we're wondering is if you have some schools not go back um, live and, and students are going online, maybe the teacher's employed, but the lunch lady's not employed, or the, the janitor is not employed, or what have you. Um, if some universities are going online, um, there are going to be some students who are going to defer, and, this, and the universities may cut back on their staffing. And it's possible that, you know, there's no way the seasonal adjustment 
can pick these issues up properly. And so um, I wouldn't be surprised in September if you end up with funky numbers because there's kind of a normal seasonal surge of employment that, um, that, that may cause another set of accounting issues, if you will. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was, and then the other thing I guess is really interesting is you, you think countries like, you know, Britain kind of nationalized payroll. Um, so there's been people who are doing, you know, a little bit different stuff than just, you know, extending unemployment. You know, they've physically been paying businesses to, to, you know, keep their guys on payroll. And I wonder if that might've been a more effective route um, when this thing started. But I mean, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, I think that if we actually step back and everybody has a slightly different economic system and, and we're approaching the same problem, but generally in the developed world, we've really nationalized this crisis. What we've done is we've said, listen, Joe lost his job. Joe didn't do anything wrong. Um, why don't we all share that burden and the government's going to either pay Joe or pay his employer or help uh, lend money to his business and maybe forgive the loan, which is basically, you know, a grant. And um, the, what you, what you don't have is this is not like mana coming from heaven. This is not free. What it means is you have an enormous government debt that is being created in the U S it'll probably be something in the ballpark of a quarter of a year's worth of GDP. So $5 trillion. And, um, if you, if we pay that over 50 years, that's, that's 50 basis points of GDP growth that was erased. So this is a, an, an enormous number. Now the means to do that, whether the government is saying, don't worry, I'll pay you or whether the government puts money in people's pockets um, and, you know, or, or through programs, it, it's, it's really hard to do well when you're trying to do it so fast. I mean, you know, we have businesses in our community that are perfectly healthy in this environment that, um, that aren't really being damaged. And we have others that are being obliterated and the government is basically giving them almost identical amounts of money because they don't really have the ability to get into the intricacies of everyone's business model, understand how they're being affected. And I think that that's just the nature of what we're in, that uh, it's, it's not a question of what's fair or not fair. I think well-meaning people are doing the best that they can, but, um, but it, it is a very sloppy process and it's one that we're going to be paying for for a long time. And, and if we do think about uh, another stimulus coming, in, in the coming weeks, hopefully, and the, the Treasury Department reported the deficit hit $864 billion last month. In 2011, we saw the S&P downgrade U.S. credit for the first time. With, with taking on so much debt and, and continuing to, to increase the deficit, are, are we at risk of another credit downgrade? And, and if so, what would the ramifications be for us if, if that's the case? Yeah, I mean, I, I always look at the rating agencies as downgrading after everyone who trades the instruments already knows that there's a problem. So <laughs> I'm less concerned. And frankly, I think the Fed is the same way. Like, um, you know, oh, you know, the economy's really weak. Why don't we lower interest rates? Well, the market already knew that and was already lowering interest rates for them. But um, I, I, I think that if you take a look at the what's been happening to the U.S. dollar, 
if you take a look at what's been happening to interest rates, I mean, I, I, earlier this week, the um, I think it was yesterday, the two-year Treasury yield hit its all-time low ever. The five-year Treasury hit its all-time low ever. In the last six weeks or so, the 30-year Treasury is down 44 basis points. It's not at its all-time low ever, but it's 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 pretty directionally close. The 10-year bond yield as well has been sinking down, even though it's not at record low levels. The the market is telling you that that there is a burden here, and the burden is that if we we can do all of these things to try to help people out, and it's and it's and it's noble. I'm, I'm not saying that it's not the right thing to do, but there is a cost, and the cost is future economic growth. And, you know, that's what the market is, is reflecting in yields. Um, if you look at what's happening to the U.S. dollar or gold, what it, it, it kind of appears is that the U.S. is in many ways being almost more aggressive at addressing this than other countries are, or perhaps we were further away from, you know, the U.S. government had a smaller role than the European government, and we're becoming more like Europe and more like Japan after this process, which is why our interest rates are basically moving toward theirs, because we're effectively taking on policies that look more like Japan, if you will. Um, But it's a really, it's a very big deal. And that's a great point about our, our rates being so low. We we saw that the the Fed came out yesterday and said they're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. <laughs> and do you think that we could see that the Fed maybe push rates to to go negative? Is, is that something that the Fed may do? Um, well, first of all, I think the answer is yes. And not, they, let's 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 first start by saying that there's no way the Fed will admit to the to the fact that they're um, putting rates, you know, negative rates on the table, but the, the, the two-year yield is under 20 basis points, so it's not like we're really far from that. Now, we did have negative interest rates um, at certain points of the curve around the two-year, not two-year, but at certain points of the curve at the very short end um, around the March-April time frame. So, we, we did have negative rates in the U.S. I think it was for about something like five or seven um, trading days. Um, but, the, um, the, the the question that that I, I well I think that we're all of the belief that the Fed sets interest rates, not the capital markets, and I, I'm not sure I really believe that. I think that the reason rates are low is because the demand for capital is weak, and the expectation is that it's going to remain weak for a long time. So therefore, that that's the way the uh, yields are pricing. Um, if the Fed said we're just, we're going to get out of the way and let the market set interest rates. I think they would be equally low, um, but but whether they're incrementally positive or incrementally negative is maybe academic. The real issue is how do you retire on a an 18 basis point or 15 basis point to your bond yield? I mean, what what how do you how do you live in that? How do you kind of make decisions in that world? And 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 there's this general belief that well, this is great. We're all going to borrow all this money because interest interest rates are cheap. But I think it's the opposite. You know, the guy who's thinking about 
retiring someday is saying, I need to save a boatload more money than I thought. I need to not borrow that money. I need to save more money because I'm not going to get a return in my retirement. And, and we talked about this on our last call, you know, whether it's being, whether you're forced to put money in equities or whether you look and say, are there guaranteed um, income um, products, um, annuity products, other types of, of vehicles that you could put yourself in that can help you get through a period of ultra low interest rates, but, but the old, you know, 60, 40 equity mix and moving towards fixed income as you move into retirement is going to be quite unsatisfactory. Yeah, that rule of 4% drawdown seems certainly aggressive in the current environment. That's for sure. Yep. Agreed. I guess, and I guess one thing is, you know, obviously the news is really sifted to tech. Uh, I didn't watch, you know, any of the, you know, much of what happened yesterday, but I heard, you know, there was a handful of softballs. Um, but, you know, that, 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 that might be just someone else's take. But we, we do know, you know, Facebook closed 1.38% higher yesterday. Amazon, Amazon was up 1.1. You know, Alphabet was up 1.32. And that's just really been the story of the NASDAQ this year. It's consistently outperformed the S&P 500. And, you know, a lot of stocks like Microsoft have been trading like mid-cap companies. So, I mean, that, I guess, brings the question, how many parallels do we see to, you know, 1999 in terms of tech valuations and um, why and why might, why not be, this might be a different environment? Hey, listen, it, it's, I think it's the question of the moment if you're, if you're an equity investor. Um, so let, let me kind of frame the, the, this question a little bit differently. Um, in the last 12 months, the, biggest five companies, not the best returning ones, just the biggest five returned 49% and the rest of the market returned zero. And that, and, and the, the last time that we had anything that looked remotely like this was in March of 2000, right at the point that the market was about to roll over and, and take a huge um, a huge hit, and so your 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 comparison is really is really important. Um, but there, but I think the parallels are, I, I think, are a little bit unfair. These five companies, seventy five percent of their returns are coming from superior profits. So it's not like that. It's speculative flows that are coming in because people are trading on Robinhood and that's pushing them up, which maybe a little bit is happening of that, but, but the vast majority is they're just delivering much better growth. The revenue growth in the last 12 months is like 10 times better for these five companies than the rest of the market. They have no, not they have no debt whatsoever. They actually have excess cash on their balance sheet where the rest of the market has pretty sizable amounts of debt on their balance sheet. And the volatility of these big five companies, of, of each of them, is um, in aggregate, is lower than the average company in the rest of the 495 stocks in the S&P 500. Um, the profit margin is 70% higher, which means they do much better in a period of economic weakness. Um, so they're, the bottom line is they're just superior companies that deserve a real peak um, 
valuation. Um, a, a term that you know some people like and don't like is the idea of a peg ratio. What's the PE or the valuation you're paying for a stock for every unit of growth? So if the PE is 20 and a company is growing at 20%, that's a peg of one. Um, right now, the peg ratio, so by the way, the lower the peg ratio, the better you look. The peg ratio for the market is four. So the PE of the market is four times higher than the average growth rate of a stock. The peg ratio for the top five is that Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook um, is only two. So these companies, if you compare their valuations to their growth rates, they're actually trading at half of the valuation of the market. So I actually think that the, the, um, the experience we've had in the last 12 months where there's this separation between haves and have-nots in terms of the winning stocks, I think that we're going to see this continue. Um, I think we'll probably see the same theme roughly continuing for the next year. Now, there's another part of this, which is if you look at the U.S. market versus global market, the big global winners are predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly U.S. large cap growth names. And this is why the U.S. is better positioned versus the rest of the world because our companies are higher quality. They, they have less debt. They're in more um, attractive industries like healthcare and tech. And so I think that the U.S. will also um, outperform as we go forward. And, and the same thing for large cap and, and growth of relative to small cap and value. So um, it's not just about the five versus everything else. It, the, the themes play through in virtually everything in stockland. Yeah, I mean, we mentioned the five, but I guess a good, you know, thing, another thing to mention is that IPOs seem to have gotten sexy again. You know, you got uh, Lemonade spent up 166% um, from its 2019 IPO, and then, you know, Agora's doing well. There's just seems like there's been a series of companies that, um, you know, that have had really successful launches recently. Yeah, it, one of the things that's just been amazing here. And, and again, the question is how much of this is fundamentals of, of good businesses um, and versus the, the government kind of feeding these and, and, and the like. But the capital markets are open. You, you would think that there would be a lack of liquidity for, you know, for IPOs and that, that there wouldn't be this opportunity. But the markets are open. You know, if you look at Credit spreads, which are, are a really great indication of um, economic health and whether companies are going to go bankrupt and make their loan payments and things like that, credit spreads are operating as if conditions are pretty normal. And I have to say that the government has done a really good job of saying, listen, we're going to make sure that the capital markets allow money to be funneled. And if the capital markets are open, I think a lot of companies that we're thinking about going public are saying is I'm going to do it now because I don't know what the world is going to look like in six months from now. Maybe it'll be better. Maybe it won't be. But if, if the capital markets are open and people are looking for exciting things to be in, I'm going to market now. And um, it is really a positive sentiment issue for the market when these IPOs end up being successful. 
Yeah, I mean, and I'm Renaissance Capital is always an interesting one to watch too. Um, I, I mean, and how much of this do you think is based on the perception that a vaccine in 2021? I mean, I know the CBO kind of projected that social distancing is going to continue, uh, but to a declining degree. Um, you know, the agency kind of was talking about that its peak social distancing will drop by two thirds during you know the second half of this year, and then and then hopefully by 2021, um, you know, things are clear and then we have a vaccine. So I, I guess I mean that's just got to be a lot of it, right? Well, you know, listen, I, this is an area where I'm, I'm a little bit more uh, skeptical, and I know that there is differences, but we still don't have a, a vaccine for AIDS. But we have therapeutics that allow people to, to live with the disease. Um, it's really hard to build a vaccine. If, if you were building a drug for some kind of uh, ailment or disease, um, and you know, a certain percentage of people get sick or die when they take it, but it helps a lot of people, you can have a trade-off. If you're going to give healthy people a vaccine, it needs to be unbelievably safe with very few side effects. Or people are, it just doesn't make any sense to, for the population to take it. Um, and there's been some interesting recent findings, um, which say that the antibodies don't stay in our system for very long against COVID. So if you get, if you catch the, if you catch this and you have antibodies that, you know, in three months or so, they're kind of flushed out of your system or what have you, which, which, which makes it harder to get a vaccine. So I'm, it's not as if we might not have a vaccine at the beginning of the year, but I think that there's a decent and reasonable chance that we're going to be living with this for longer than, than we, than we want and, um, or shorter than we want. And if you look at, um, the recent, I believe it was Google who announced that their employees are going to be going back into the office in July. Um, if, if you're going into an office and everybody has to wear a mask and you can't sit around a, a lunch table with your colleagues or in a conference room with, with them, if some of, if your, if your office has A days and B days so that even if you want to talk to your colleagues, half of them are sitting at home and you're going to have to video conference them in any way, the, the benefits of shared office space become less economically, um, you know, doable. And so, uh, and I think that that's even more the case in cities like New York or San Francisco, where a lot of people are commuting in by rail. So my, my general view is, is that we should probably expect this to be longer lived and be positively surprised when we find that this thing is, is, is over rather than constantly thinking that the, you know, okay, we're going to have something in September. No, it's going to be the end of the year and, and, and the other way around. But, um, a lot of money and effort is being spent to solve this thing. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be quick. No, sorry, yeah. I hope sorry, for my, sorry for my pessimism on this one. No, no. I, I think a lot of people think this is going to be a scenario where it's going to be like victory over Japan day. And there's going to be photos of, you know, nurses and soldiers kissing, and I just don't think that's going to be the end outcome. You know, it's um, it's going to be a little more subtle than that. I I I uh, I, I unfortunately I, I agree with you. And we're back in the office here, and I can tell you, wearing a mask all day is definitely not ideal. 
Uh, and then just to yeah, shift gear. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, and, and, and just to shift gears, you, you did mention gold. Oh, we, we have seen gold surge recently hitting all-time highs. Uh, usually we, we see it maybe used as a hedge against inflation, but considering we're in kind of a, a low inflation environment, it, are, why are so many people running to gold right now? Is it because of so much uncertainty or, or what's your take? So I, first of all, it's it, it's a really great question, and so I I think the consensus wisdom is that exactly as you said, gold's an inflation hedge first and foremost, um, and therefore if gold is going up, there must be an inflation problem. Uh, but I think that it's something else. If you actually look at a if you're going to like a Bloomberg screen or something, you look at a gold chart. It's been edging higher now for for a while. It's not. Like, like gold was was trending down and it did this recent about face in March. And if you think about it, if you wanted to be a gold investor and you were really going to do this, you're going to want to lever up and you're going to want to buy gold with borrowed money. And when interest rates fall, the ability to put that trade on go up. Now, just think about gold versus buying a, a dividend-paying stock. You're not getting any income whatsoever on this thing. So you have to hope that this thing is going up because the cost of financing this has a negative carry. On the other hand, if you buy a stock today with a 2% dividend yield and the cost of financing it is way cheaper than that, every day that you're borrowing the stock, you're getting paid because the dividend is greater than the borrowing. So um, the gold is very sensitive to falling interest rates. And that's what we've had. So my belief is this is more a related to the, the, the decline in interest rates than it is about the inflation story. And if you actually look at two things, which is gold going up and the dollar going down, I think both of those are symptoms of a falling interest rate story. And they're not the, they're not the underlying cause. They're kind of a knock-on effect. Um, but there's a lot of really, really smart people who are buying gold because they, they think that inflation is going to go through the roof. There's a bunch of really smart people who are betting the other way. My personal view, and, and, and I know even at Credit Suisse there are differing opinions on this, is that, um, that if we have inflation pick up, it's going to be you know, several years or longer into the future and that the market will not be trading as if inflation is a real issue in the near term. And in two or three or four years, we may find that Fed policy was over, you know, overdone and, and that caused inflation. But we're just we're just not in that world yet. I would agree. I think inflation's uh, definitely a couple years away. Uh, and, and that you did bring up a good point about the, the dollar dropping, especially against other major currencies. How has that impacted uh, a recovery as, as we see it? And, and how is a weaker dollar really Im impacted by the, the pandemic? Um, well, I, first of all, there's, there's lots of parts of this conversation. In a classic economic sense, you know, there's this idea of a beggar thy neighbor policy where if interest rate, I'm sorry, if the dollar weakens, then it's cheaper to buy U.S. goods, and that helps the U.S. economy. But at the same time, it makes it more expensive to buy foreign goods, and that damages 
um, overseas economy. So it, it, there's a effectively a bit of a wealth transfer, if you will, from that perspective to the United States. Um, when you look at profits on U.S. companies, those companies that do business abroad, if you made a dollar or a euro or a yen or whatever it is abroad, and then you consider that our declining currency means their currency is going up, the profits in euros are worth you know, three or 5% more than they were before. And that ends up being uh, additional profit growth that, that you get for a U.S. company that does a lot of business outside the U.S. Um, but there's something else to complicate. You know, it's, it's actually quite complicated <laughs> and these things all set each other, which is if you believe that the, the euro is going to rise, then you say, well, why don't I buy assets in Europe? I can buy European stock, European bond, European real estate, whatever. If you, and so when, when, if the world believes that the, that the dollar is going to keep falling, what do they naturally do? They say, well, I don't want to be buying a dollar asset. I don't want to be buying the S&P 500. I don't want to be buying a U.S. government bond because I'm going to lose money on that currency. And so that you end up having, yes, it helps U.S. profits, but it hurts their valuations because the fund flows move against you. So the, the story on the impacts um, are... Are, are so straightforward and simple, and the reality is so convoluted and and um, and difficult um, that I, you know, I'm not convinced that. The, the, oh, I am convinced the single best thing is a currency stability, um, rather because because it allows you to do a better job of kind of making uh, long-term investment decisions. And if the dollar were to weaken, then you end up disrupting capital flows and decision processes, and that is damaging. But in terms of this belief that it's a windfall, I, I think that that's overly simplistic. Well, Jonathan, we're about half an hour. Thanks for your time today. That was great. Um, for all our listeners, uh, we'll be taking August off, but then we'll be... The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.